All right. All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a moment in time that is truly precious, truly set apart, sanctified by your grace and your love, and for giving each of us the physical abilities to come join in your wonderful fellowship together as family in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to the cross uh, to cancel out that debt against us and for creating the narrow road that leads to life. For as your Son stated, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. May this truth be ever magnified as it brings glory to you, Father. And may each of us press on in the face of increasing adversity, laying down our lives for others. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. As I mentioned uh, at the start of class, Thursday evening's message was uh, wonderful to see. And as I listened to our guest speakers, I thought of those in the early church. And I was reading the book of Acts on Saturday morning over a cup of coffee. And it reminded me of them once again. Go to Acts 5.40. Acts 5, verse 40. So I was reading this Saturday morning, early first thing in the morning, and obviously I was reflecting on the goings-on at the ministry and what have you, and that just happened to sort of coalesce or come together um, from the Spirit. Acts 5.40, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name's sake. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. What a magnificent witness. Look at that attitude, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name's sake. As we've learned many times in the past, we have been predestined, after all, to suffer for His name's sake. We've also learned that we've been predestined to be sanctified, once saved. So if we put these two things together, what we know is that we suffer to be sanctified. Again, we have been predestined to suffer. We have been predestined to be sanctified. But what can we conclude? We suffer to be sanctified. (laughs) These two things are uh, really, again, or uh, I'll get this to you next time. These two things really speak directly to sanctification, which means what? 
to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes, to be consecrated in time unto God's will. This is what it means to be sanctified. And what the Spirit's been teaching us as of late, now for since really the opening of this ministry, but especially since the reloading of the gospel, is what does that actually mean? Sanctification, you know, multisyllabic word, wow. Big word, multiple syllables. Uh, it's one thing to throw it around at a party. It's another thing to understand, well, what does that actually mean in my life? Most people are not interested in being a PhD in theology after all, so who cares about huge words? What does God want for my life? What does he intend to do with me after salvation? That's sanctification. And there's your answer on the board. He wants you. You're his own. You're his child now if you're saved. So he wants to make you holy. He wants to set you apart for his own purposes. He wants to consecrate you unto his own will. Jesus prophesied to his disciples about future tribulations, stating that such suffering leads to testimony even. Go to Luke 21.10. Luke 21.10. So we've been predestined to suffer. This we've learned in the past. And we've been predestined to be sanctified by God as well. Luke 21.10, just to help amplify. Suffering doesn't end uh, even in this dispensation, so to speak. Luke 21.10, Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes in, in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So what do you see? Regardless of the context, you see suffering in place. This is prophesied by Jesus himself. And then what does he say? He said it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony up here on the board. Sanctification is the result of faith being put into action. Testing, therefore, is designed by God as an opportunity to reveal your God-given abilities by grace through faith. This goes for salvation and sanctification. You are a witness. Acts 10, 34 to 43, 1 Timothy 6:12, Hebrews 12, 1. Again, sanctification is the result of faith being put into action. Testing, therefore, is designed by God as an opportunity to reveal your God-given abilities. What? To persevere. To be put to the test. To have your faith questioned even. And if anybody's honest with themselves, you know that your flesh is the perfect candidate to sow doubt in your soul. Amen? Yeah. But there's your opportunity. You have God-given abilities. That's what faith is. Faith to what? Overcome. Nikao, be an overcomer. You were reborn. You were born again as an overcomer. So you have the ability. You have the faith. But sometimes the flesh gets the best of us and we shrink away to our own shame. But this is the way God designed sanctification to bring glory to himself 
by showing and witnessing to His God-given abilities by grace through faith. And again, it's not just at salvation, it's at sanctification. But here's the thing, and please concentrate. We are not to prepare ourselves with human strength. Rather, we ought to humble ourselves in faith, knowing that every battle is His, and because it's His, He's already won. Look at verse 14. He says it straight up. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. That goes for all of you who have been struggling with, okay, I get it. I'm supposed to go out on this great commission. I'm learning this. I'm being motivated to do this by the Spirit. He's convicting me to do this, but I'm afraid. I don't have the gospel memorized, so to speak. I don't have scripture memorized, so to speak. What is that? What did Jesus say? Stop trying to over-prepare. I'll give you utterance and wisdom in the time of need. And that's a big deal for a lot of people because this human rationalism going out on human faith, uh, human strength, uh, being timid. We're given the spirit of power, not timidity, right? That's in Timothy. So we're not supposed to be timid. If he says go out, then he's going to equip you. He's not going to leave you hanging. The only way you can muck it up if he's truly called you out is if you get in the way. You try to become the perfect evangelist. You try to get everything perfectly nailed. And one of the things we saw on Thursday evening was, and these are people that have been on this, you know, been in ministry for years now, is that it's never the same. Context, context, context. I, I can't say it like Fassel, but if you were here, you remember, I'd have to have a beard and be a little bigger, and he'd say, context, context, con-. I don't know. I'm going to hope you don't get mad at him if he watches this. But it's funny because the Spirit was saying the same thing through individuals of the church in Pakistan as, they, as he's been saying to this church. So don't let those fleshly fears dissuade you is what Jesus was saying. Verse 16 But you will be betrayed even by parents. Some of you can relate to this. By parents, by brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Being hated is suffering for his name's sake. So says scripture. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. What a wonderful example again of the point on the board. Sanctification is the result of faith being put into action. Testing, therefore, is designed by God as an opportunity to reveal your God-given abilities by grace through faith. This goes for salvation and sanctification. And then you are a witness. This is something the Spirit had me just sort of tag on the end of this slide on the board. All of that in tow, just remember, you're also a witness. People are watching you. And they're watching you be sanctified. So let's look at the scripture now to amplify the point on the board regarding our being witnesses in time. And again, the instigating verses, Luke 21, 13, that said, it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. That's what witnessing is, right? You have a testimony uh, of Jesus Christ. Go to Acts 10, 34. And people are watching. Whether you like it or not is not the point. I went to a party yesterday filled with, I'm assuming there were a few believers there, but mostly worldly people, and there was probably 50 people there. 
50 people and it started, you know, I was getting introduced and people would ask, you know, what's the first thing any guy asks of any other guy? What do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Scratching record. How about them socks? How about the pats? Nobody wants to talk about it. But it has a little ripple effect. And who knows? There were kids there. Who knows who was spoken to? I don't know. But we have an opportunity, whether we like it or not, if we stand for Christ, we stand for something. Acts 10.34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify, there's your witness, to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Again, you are a witness. Go to 1 Timothy 6.12. 1 Timothy 6.12. So we're all witnesses. First Timothy 6.12. I want you to see the scripture so you don't just take my word for it. 6.12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of what? Many witnesses. You are a witness to many witnesses. Go to Hebrews 10.28. Hebrews 10.28. Why do you think... Baptism is a public affair. And by the way, we voted on the baptismal and we all pretty much conceded that it should be on the outside. That, so that's where we went, right? So DJ's going to build one like next week because he's got nothing else to do. I think he said something out right after the luncheon, after the AV meeting. Hebrews 10.28 Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so that just sort of shores up the fact that witnessing is a big deal in the Bible. Whether we like it or not, we are witnesses. And as we are sanctified, we are witnesses. The fundamental point the Spirit's making here is simple up here on the board. To God's glory, why sanctify us? Why make us public? so to speak. Why give us a church like this on a hill in Dighton with a ginormous cross on the front of it? Why do that thing? Because we're supposed to be out there. 
doing this thing. We're supposed to be public witnesses. What good is it if you take everything you know and you go live in a cave? How does that actually come together? How does that actually do anything for the Great Commission? You're in a cave. You're going to try to evangelize a spider? Seriously. There's a reason why there's a public nature. And it starts, think about it. What's the first thing you do, typically, after you're saved? You get baptized, how? Publicly. So it starts right at salvation. To God's glory, faith is the device that God equips believers with in order to bring glory to himself. We receive both the faith and the trials where it is tested by grace. This is what he does for us. This is what he does through vessels of mercy. He says, I'm going to give you something supernatural that's going to not just blow your mind. How about those around you? How about those that witness your witness? How about those that see you? How about those that you went to school with? I, I saw a, 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 a woman that's my age. I graduated high school with. I have, literally haven't seen her since high school. I'm 47 now. Of course it came out that I'm a pastor. Of course it came out that I'm a Christian. These are kind of the ways that, <laughs> that God puts us to the test. You're going to speak openly about who and what you are in Christ Jesus? Or are you going to sort of shrink away? We receive both the faith and the trials where it is, to, where it is tested by grace. Stated more pragmatically... To God's glory, without the trials, faith remains untested, unconsummated. Without the faith, trials are either self-induced and or originating from one of our other enemies. That's something that a lot of people need to think about as well. Without the trials, faith remains untested, unconsummated. Without the faith, trials are either self-induced and or originating from one of our other enemies. How do I know that? Because what Scripture says up here in the board, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Well, that's assuming that you're in His will. If you're self-induced, if you're a... Um, that person that just blatantly adds pressure, adds testing, uh, self-induced suffering to your life, well, then you're outside of his will. That's not even his faith being tested. That's your human faith, the faith that comes from the flesh being tested. Can I outmuscle this situation? Can I do, you know, I call it dysfunction junction. You create something in the flesh, and then you kick against it to try to relieve yourself. Then you, that, that struggle's over, that, tr that trial is over. Now I'm bored. Well, let me go do something else stupid. Let me go do something that's antithesis of Christ, create another problem, almost on purpose, so that I can remain in this normal thing that's called dysfunction junction. And let me spend all my time in the flesh and just creating and fighting against fleshly things when all you have to do is say, I'm, handing, that's, I'm dead to those things. Those things are dead to me. So says Romans. I'm just going to focus on the Lord. And when I do that, everything falls into place. It's His faith that He's given me. And then if I'm here with my focus on the Lord and a trial comes in, then it's through His strength. My grace is sufficient for you, right? So says the Lord. And there's the distinction. 
So God will give you a way of escape. The practical side to this clearly stated theology is, if you're not being tested, at least being challenged in your soul, then something might be awry. If you're not being tested, at least challenged in your soul, then something might be awry. And along those lines, I think, of a, lot of, I think a lot of people misjudge and mischaracterize the nature, the very nature of testing. And when you do that, that is poor witnessing. Here's how. People characterize, most people characterize testing as anything that causes them personal discomfort. This is grossly misinterpreting God's grace, for so much of man's suffering is self-induced. Again, most people characterize testing as anything that causes them personal discomfort. I mean, if I was to take a hammer out right now, put my hand down, just start slamming my fingers, and then say, God, what's up? What do you mean, what's up? You're an idiot. Stop slamming your fingers. Right? <laughs> I mean, come on. But that's what we do in a nutshell, right? We do all these ridiculous fleshly things, and then we complain to God, where's my deliverance? What do you mean, where's your deliverance? Stop doing it to yourself. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? I mean, he will give you an escape, generally speaking, from even that, which is what he's doing right now. He's equipping you so you stop doing dysfunction junction as you're normal. But while you're in that thing, don't blame God for not, quote, delivering you every time you slam your finger with a hammer. That's grossly misinterpreting God's grace for so much of man's suffering is self-induced. Here's an example, and I think this is because on the coattails of, all, remember all our talks, everybody's favorite subject, finances, yay. So this is just an example. I have no one in view, so don't be getting all guilty. Oh, you're talking about me. I'm not talking about you. Stop being so self-absorbed. A grown, capable man finds himself financially strapped month after month, year after year. And he's constantly whining about his situation to others, claiming his being broke is evidence of some kind of special calling on his life that somehow God has chosen him to live the pauper's life. Yet, this same man ignores clearly stated theology, such as, go to Proverbs 10.4, Proverbs 10.4. So here we have an individual, some of you probably know people like this, that this, I'm broke, I'm this, I'm that. God must be putting me to the test. Well, what does Scripture say about a man and working hard so that he's not necessarily a burden? We're supposed to lead men. That's why we had the men's conference. We could have easily called it the men's leadership conference. Proverbs 10.4. This is clearly stated theology. Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. How about Proverbs 13.4? Go there, 13.4. Proverbs 13.4. And we're talking about attitude here, folks. Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. 
How about Proverbs 21, 5? Proverbs 21, verse 5. <clears throat> this goes out to the let's get rich quick people. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to what? Poverty. You think, you, think, uh, you know, the, I hate to say it, I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but the, the, um, the lottery's a joke. You know that. That's just a tax. And if you choose to pay it, then you pay a tax because you're not going to win. Now, you oh, but so-and-so won $125 million. You literally have a better chance of getting eaten by a land shark. <laughs> okay, they just don't exist, so that's infinity, okay? Is this, you know what I'm getting at? It, but that's what we all want. We want this quick, get-rich-quick scheme, and then we complain to God when it doesn't happen. Why don't you just work hard? Why don't you just go out there and dig a ditch? Oh, I can't dig a ditch. I don't know how. Well, here's a shovel. I'll teach you. Go do something. Seriously. Go do something. Why? Because that's what the Word says to do. Imagine that. So it's not Pastor Ed, so stop looking at the ball guy. It's not about me. I'm teaching on behalf of the Lord. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, but everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. How about Colossians 3.23? Colossians 3.23. Don't be a poor witness. This, don't forget the point on the board. The Lord says, I want workers. I want men that work hard. I don't want lazy butts. I don't want sluggards. I don't want get-rich-quick people. I want workers to work hard. Why? Even Jesus Christ was a carpenter. Being a carpenter back in the day, they didn't have those guns with the air gun. No offense. They're hammering crooked nails, you know, and, and, and ripping off bark with their arms. You understand? Hard work. Paul was a, was a, a tent builder. You understand? These things are hard work. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Whatever you do, do it heartily. A man who doesn't work hard in time is a poor witness to others because it is contradictory to clearly stated theology. Go to Ecclesiastes 9.10. Ecclesiastes 9.10. A man who doesn't work hard in time is against clearly stated theology. And I'm not talking about people with actual ailments that preclude them from working. To whom much is given, much is required. If God gives you the health and the ability to work, work. If he gives you an ailment and you can't work, then that was your calling. Everybody's like, oh, I, oh my shoulder hurts. Oh, can't dig a ditch because my shoulder hurts. Tell that to the guy in Pakistan who the highlight of his day is listening to Pastor Fassel teach him the Word of God for 40 minutes, then off to making bricks in 120-degree heat. And there's no AC. Some of you are probably like, it's kind of warm in here. <clears throat> are you serious? Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. 
For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom or shield where you are going. Do it with all your might. Go to 1 Timothy 5.8, last verse. And this is just a sidebar. It's just to say, it's an example to show you that people are watching in every way. You can't just wear a little badge or a, you know, a little uh, a pendant around your neck that has a cross on it or an earring that has a cross, whatever. That's not enough. It's not enough just to drive to church. We go out afterwards and we're witnesses. And if you're a sluggard and then you say, I'm a Christian, you say, well, look at the Christian. He don't even work hard. And that is literally against the word of God. Literally, not kind of, not Pastor Red's interpretation, literally against the word of God. And people are watching you. 1 Timothy 5.8, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that's a pretty big indictment for some people. And as the spirits had me teaching with some emphasis as of late up here on the board, just to give you more context, working hard for others. This ain't all about you even. We mustn't think of our hard work as merely being able to, quote, pay our own bills from month to month. Rather, we must think bigger picture, understanding that we work for God, who intends to use such fruit to the benefit of others. Others. In other words, you know, you might say to yourself, hmm, I know people that do it right now. Every time there's a need in the church, they work extra hours to meet that need. Why? Because you know why? Because they see what the point on the board is. That they're not just working for themselves. Most people say, oh, it's three o'clock. I'm done. I think I can make my bills this month. Woohoo, let's go. The person who actually understands the point on the board says, I've got enough energy, God willing, to work another two hours. And I'm going to take that money that I earn in those two hours and I'm going to direct it directly towards that need. It doesn't have to be in the church, but whatever the need might be that God has made known to them. That's what Christian witnessing looks like. It's an attitude of giving and living for others. So we don't just work for ourselves even. We know what the bottom line is. If you don't take care of your own family, you have a problem. But beyond that, if we're to live for others then, what does it mean? Work hard. You understand? This is scripture. This is not Pastor Ed. I believe most people would do well to work a lot harder and do a lot less complaining. If you're taking some sort of an offense with the pastor right now, may I submit some more scripture for your discriminating palate? Go to Acts 20.35. Acts 20.35. Kind of hard to follow this whopper if you're lazy. Just saying, guys. And yes, I am talking to the men specifically here. I mean, come on, guys. Acts 20, 35. Here's a whopper. If you're lazy at heart, this one's going to be, hot. This one's going to be kind of hard to meet. And everything I showed you by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said what? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, how are you going to do that if you're lazy? How are you going to give anything if you're a sluggard? Working hard for 
others. We mustn't think of our hard work as merely being able to pay our own bills from month to month. Rather, we must think bigger picture, understanding that we work for God, who intends to use such fruit to the benefit of others. I'll give you a perfect practical example of this. I learned that Faisal, oh, I did it again, Faisal somewhere out there, nobody, Fassel the castle, Fassel and Carrie John, the missionaries you met and spoke to on Thursday evening, are blessed with living in a home that a woman supporter provides them while they reside in the U.S. They spend about half their time over here. That woman is a faithful believer and believes in their labor. The practical point is that at some point, someone had to work hard to purchase this home. Now, I'm telling you, this home is gorgeous. Nice deck overlooking mountains in Arizona. Someone had to work hard to purchase this home that they reside in now. Emphasis on work hard. That's how God works. That's how he works. He wants us to work hard. Somebody had to work hard, right? Houses like that just don't grow on trees. Buildings like this. I'm thinking of the people from the previous church, Art and Frank and Betty and, and everybody else. I don't mean to exclude anybody. These things don't grow on trees. Hundreds of thousands of dollars this place cost. And an equal amount of labor worth that amount of money was put into this building. How? Hard work. If you don't believe me, look at the, what do you call that, montage? Collage. What's a montage? I don't know. Collage. Montage of video. I was close. Hard work. Hard work. Somebody has to do it. But, but you see, I have, I have piano fingers. Join the crowd. Right? I can't pick up a hammer because I'll just, oh, I'll break a nail. What, are you kidding me? Where'd you learn that? I can't do this. I don't know how to do that. Well, learn! Right? I wasn't built for that. So God's just a liar, and he's calling you out right now. Anyways, you get the point. These people, these missionaries, while they're stateside, are supported by someone's hard work. Again, the point on the board, working hard for others. We mustn't think, and keep in mind, witnessing. We mustn't think of our hard work as merely being able to, quote, pay our own bills from month to month. Rather, we must think bigger picture, understanding that we work for God who intends to use such fruit for the benefit of others. Once again, whether we are talking about finances or time and energy or whatever, the words of Jesus himself ring loud and true. John 15, 13, Greater love is no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friend. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. You cannot do it. You can't be storing up things for yourselves, even, for yourselves. I, once again, may I remind you to keep these lessons within the greater context of our curriculum. As a friendly reminder, never take a lesson or two out of context 
Never react so viscerally to a lesson such that you are completely unnerved or thrown off. If you lack in a certain area, then accept it as truth in your life and see what he wants to do with you. Pray on it. If you're a sluggard, say, look in the mirror and say, I'm a sluggard. If you're one of these people, then look in the mirror and say, I'm one of these people. Well, there's your first step of humility. Fine. Sanctification takes time. Knee-jerk reactions are often the cause for further angst, which isn't the Spirit's intention. Conviction is necessary. However, religious fear isn't. So with that said, we are just, quote, cleaning up shop here as we get back to our lessons on experiential sanctification proper. It's what it means, folks, to go out there and do it. To what? To suffer for his name's sake. Didn't we just see that in Scripture? To be sanctified for his name's sake. Didn't we just see that in Scripture? These things come together. You know that you're predestined to suffer and be sanctified. That's part of experiential sanctification. And that's not Pastor Ed. That's the Word of God. That's why I show you all those Scriptures. I mean, we've already been to probably, what, 20 Scriptures already? I mean, come on. Do you need any more evidence? These things are just... And stop asking all the loophole questions. Well, you know, because I was doing this, then I can not do that. And because I was doing this and, you know, that. And th stop it. Stop looking for loopholes in the Bible that justify your ridiculousness. Anyways, happy Sunday. <laughs> Experiential sanctification. And this is what we need to keep in mind, big picture, working framework. Don't keep that friendly reminder on you always. That even though he tells me to speak with certain vigor, don't have a knee-jerk reaction. Take it. If it's severe enough or it's causing a stir in your soul, good. But don't get all crazy and say, I'm just going to throw in the towel and you know, this is just too much, or I'm just too, I'm unhelpable, please. Now you're being totally arrogant. Don't do that thing. As the Spirit stated from Scripture at the start of class, we suffer to be sanctified. Go to Romans 5.3. Romans 5, verse 3. <clears throat> you have to accept these things, folks. You have to, and if you're just starting out, like some of you are, Take a big, deep breath. You're not supposed to, quote, be there yet. You're supposed to say, I'm not there yet. Um, he's still working out in my soul. I'm not going to force faith. I can't manufacture it myself, so I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to stay humble, and then he's going to transform me. Metamorpho in the Greek, like he says he's going to transform me. He guarantees it, Philippians 1.6, and I'm just going to rest in that. But do not do that thing and get all fleshly and quit. Romans 5.3 And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. On that note of proven character... One of the reasons there's a glut of wimpy men in this world is because they choose not to persevere. Emphasis on the word choose. God honors free will. We know this from Scripture. 
Even the commands in the Bible, they're active voice. They're involving the individual. Everyone has a choice. One of the reasons here there's a glut of wimpy men in this world is because they choose not to persevere, for example, due to a lack of faith. Their first response to tribulation is to point the finger at someone else. This contradicts Scripture. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. That's very weak and very arrogant to point the finger at someone else. Even if you've been persecuted, what, did he, what does Scripture say? If it's from Him, you've got the escape already planned. You've already got the grace and the faith to do it. Whatever He's asking you to do. However, if you're the person who resides in dysfunction junction, well, I don't know what to tell you other than stop it. Because that's what is hurting you. That's what's been hurting you all these years. And guess whose choice it is to eject yours. So back to the men. Men are like, yowza. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Work hard. Act like men. Be strong. These are all part of our responsibilities, guys. You know, it's a crazy thing. <laughs> Women love us when we act like real men. Is that fair, ladies? I got nods. Can I hear an amen? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, ladies. Right? The more you do that, the better the meal. <laughs> right? It's true. Why, do I, why can I say that with complete confidence? Because God designed you women that way, to respond to true men. That's why if you go off in dysfunction junction and keep hooking up, and I don't mean that in the colloquial way. Maybe it is true, but that's even worse. But hey, you keep hooking up with these guys that want nothing to do with Christ, what do you expect? Honestly, what do you expect? You know how it's going to end before it even starts. Because God didn't design you to respond to that jackass, to that self-absorbed, and you fill in the blanks, ladies, I'm sure you could be very creative right now. You were built beautifully, perfectly to respond to real men. Real men. Godly men. If you're sitting here right now, then the Spirit's going to convict you Two, three, fourfold. Because now you know better. Now you know what a real man is supposed to at least be like. First and foremost, does he love Christ? Or does he want another notch in his belt? Does he want another idol? Does he want another mother? Does he want just somebody who can just hand it over because he's a weak, pathetic individual? Garbage. If you're single, ladies, stay it. Like Paul said, you're better off nowadays unless he brings someone you, to you specifically and you know that it's from God. Otherwise, good luck. Good luck. It's really quiet in here. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Here's an old friend from a previous lesson that cuts to the chase. What is perseverance? 
Okay, so the gauntlet's down. By faith means by God, since he is the author and giver of faith. Therefore, anyone can persevere if they have true faith. So stop, stop being fleshly. By faith means by God, since he is the author and giver of faith. Therefore, anyone can persevere if they have true faith. Here's something to think about. How many times have you stepped back and said to yourself, wow, you know, I, how did I just get through that thing in one piece? How many times have you sat back and said that? And you know, like, even a year ago, or two years ago, or ten years ago, you'd be a mess. How did I get through that? And then you realize that it was by the grace of God, through faith, that you persevered. Eureka. But you wouldn't have gotten that until you, guess what? Persevered. Faith has to be tested. When you realize things like this, you are strengthened all the more. Your hope increases. And when all of these things join together, your character proves. Proven character? Your character proves to be more and more like Christ's. That's what proven character means in Romans 5.4. And this, my friends, is where we find true encouragement. Romans 15.5, part A. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Perseverance, you will be able to persevere. And He will encourage you. Because when you get through that next trial, and some of you are like, man, i got to get through Dysfunction Junction first. Great. Ejected from a dysfunction junction, you lose pretty much everything you thought was normal. Your circle of friends, maybe even some family. But he says, look, if you're not willing, if you don't hate your mother and your father, and hate meaning compared to loving me, then you can't be my disciple. So your priority is him. But if you do choose him, you will persevere and he will encourage you. And just to drive this point home, especially for those of you who are still struggling with realizing any of this, we discover the things of God often through prayer. If you're confused and you're like, you know, I just need time, I just need, I understand what the pastor's saying, I understand what Scripture says, I get it, you know, the Spirit's on me, I understand, I just need time, good. But take your time in prayer. Leave some time, ample time for prayer. It's important. Persistence in prayer, Romans 15, 5 and forward, produces the fruit of fellowship in the soul of a man. God desires that we persist in going to the throne of grace in humility. The impetus for prayer fellowship is often a persistent need. Again, that's you've been predestined to what? Suffer. So he may put something on you so that you do realize. Some of you are suffering right now, realizing, you know, the facade. Realizing what you have been. And I don't like to characterize people. That's that fixed mindset, you know, where you were born a jerk. And you were born that way. And you were born, I don't believe that at all. All things are possible with God. You spent 30, 40, 50, 60 years in dysfunction junction. So, that shouldn't characterize you. You've been born again. Don't let the world tell you that's who you are, because it's not. 
Do you understand? Some of you are going to suffer just by being ejected out of dysfunction junction, leaving all that behind, and you're going to be in this sort of limbo state, confused, and the pastor seems so confident in his faith, and he says, imitate my faith. Well, I would, mister, I would. If I could just get there. But everybody takes time. Everybody, it's a time thing. But God's going to put that on you, and He's not going to show you peace and comfort for as long as you exist over here in dysfunction junction. That's not His will for you. So He's not going to give you that peace that you're after. He's not going to, you know, say, you're just learning about Jesus Christ. Oh, let me throw a guy into the picture. Oh, let me throw a girl into the picture that wants nothing to do with my son. That'll fix everything, right? Ugh. So before you go looking for deliverance in a human being, anyone else other than Christ, go to prayer. Go to prayer. And if he doesn't answer you, then stop doing what you kept doing because isn't that what Einstein said? Insanity is keep doing the same thing over and over and expect different results. Hello? Stop doing that thing, whatever it is. It's by grace design that he ordains trials for us. So pray on these things. Whether we realize it or not during the trials, if it's from God, then it is by grace. If it's from God, then it is by grace. If God commands that we persevere, then we know this, that grace precedes fruit. God will always afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish a command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace. Go to 2 Corinthians 12.9. 2 Corinthians 12.9. Paul is a great witness who was grace-oriented. God will always give us the appropriate grace to accomplish a command in the Bible. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace. What did Paul say? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. My grace is sufficient for you, my friends. That is, understanding that, abiding in that, is what we might call grace orientation up here on the board. Paul understood that power is perfected in weakness to the degree that he persistently fulfilled his mission in the face of obscene adversity, even from those in his own flock. And Paul was single, by the way, and he had plenty to keep him busy, plenty to keep him occupied. He was the same guy who said, if you like me, stay like me. Married, you know, some of the married people are like, yeah. Stay like me, unless, you know, unless someone is brought in. Paul understood that power is perfected in weakness to the degree that he persistently fulfilled his mission in the face of obscene adversity, even from those in his own flock. Some of you struggle with grace because of fleshly fears. I spoke to this earlier up here on the board. But what are fears and what is courage? The antithesis of a fear is to overcome a fear is courage. Well, that's part of grace orientation. Courage is really just another name for faith applied. 
So don't think about it in emotional terms. Think about it in God's power. If you know God's asking you to do this thing, then just do it. Don't hyperanalyze it. Don't say, oh my God, my whole life's going to turn this way or that way. Whatever. Let him deal with the details. Just do it. If you know it's from him, then just do it. That's called faith. So it's courage is, I always think of courage as almost like a misnomer. It's kind of like one of those words that we love to talk about, like in movies. He's so courageous. You always think of some you know, like big burly guys, like fighting the Terminator. You know, it's like, so courageous. That's Hollywood for you. All you really got to have is faith. You want to call it courage? Fine. You don't want to call it courage? Fine. Who cares? Just do it when he asks you to do it. Some, of you, some people looking out, you remember you're a witness, from without are going to say, now that guy or that gal is courageous. And the person that's doing it is like, I don't care. By the grace of God, I am who I am, right? Who cares? Let them worry about names and name tags and that kind of garbage, whether you're worthy to boast as a courageous man or woman. Who cares? It's faith. Courage is really just another name for faith applied. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. So while Paul appeared boastful to his flock, he was actually exceedingly humble comparatively. As a result, he pressed on under all circumstances. So on that note of courage, confidence, true confidence is offensive to the flesh because evil knows when it sees godly faith. Most of you have that have been at this for any period of time already know when you stand with any kind of confidence, the flesh hates it. The flesh will do anything to undermine you. True confidence is offensive to the flesh because evil knows when it sees godly faith. Go to Luke 8.27 where we see a perfect illustration with the story of the demons, legion, some of you know legion, right, and the swine. Evil knows when it sees godly faith. And it knows that godly faith is omnipotent. It cannot be overcome. Luke 8.27, so here's a good illustration of it. When he, Jesus, came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, plural, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in tombs. In the tomb, seeing Jesus, what did the demon do? He cried out and fell before him. And he said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now we just saw him and said, Uh-oh. This is the real deal. Now, you think of the other, like the sons of Sceva. What did that demon do? Shredded up the guys who didn't have any real faith. Sent them out naked. But when true faith came on the scene, what did the demon do? Don't torment me. You see the difference? Why? Because you can't overcome true faith. That's what Scripture says. Jesus himself said, listen, if you have the faith of a mustard seed and you say to this mountain, move, it'll move. If that was God's will, with all the disclaimers. But you get the point. Nothing's impossible with God. So if he asks you to step out, is he asks you to deny yourself and leave all that crap behind, the stuff that's been dragging you down for decades, then do it. And do it now. Why waste time? Nothing stronger than that kind of faith. 
It may not look anything like what you expected or dreamed about when you were a kid or a little girl, you know, playing dolls or a little boy playing Tonka trucks and hopefully didn't do it the other way around, but whatever, you know. You know what I'm saying? Like, just do it. Satan's gonna sell is gonna sow fear in you all the time. You can't do that. I know who you are. You're a little miss dysfunction junction. Let me remind you of how many ways that's true. You're a little Mr. Self-absorbed, egocentric, puffed up jackass. Let me remind you of all the... Here, I've been keeping count. Hold on a second. Remember this in 1972? Remember that? Remember, in, remember you did this? Remember you did that? Remember you did this? Remember you did that? Blah, blah, blah. Remember you failed all these ways? Yeah, you should just stay there. Those are all lies. Because that kind of evil knows once you have true faith, once you've been sanctified, they don't have any power over you. Those things have no power over you anymore. The ultimate illustration is what we just saw. Demon, Jesus shows up. Demon's like, whoa. Perfect faith. We don't have a prayer here. Again, the point of the board, true confidence is offensive to the flesh because evil knows when it sees godly faith. Simply stated, using Scripture, we see the affirmative side of this up here in the board if you're grace oriented then you walk by faith second corinthians 5 7 in a manner worthy of your calling ephesians 4 1 in a manner worthy of the gospel of christ philippians 1 27 there are those who actually walk by faith and those who have an incomplete quote unquote faith that says that walking by faith is the right way to walk it's one thing to mentally assent to something it's another to live it the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1.17. You know what else that means, folks? The righteous man shall live by faith. Well, what else does that mean? Are you going to live the same life I'm going to live? No. You know why? Because your life has context. And the scripture also says that he gives each a measure of faith. So you have to learn to pay attention to the Spirit in your life because your life has context. This means that you must remain in it, keep the right perspective even, while reading your Bibles. I only have you a few hours a week now, right? And by now I hope all of you have set some kind of a routine to read your Bibles. And he's saying, don't lose your own life's context when you read the Bible. Don't say, oh, I just want to be like Paul. I just want to be like David. He was so humble. I just want to be like Jesus. You know, he was... No, that's not even what you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be you. And your life has context. And maybe you are the dysfunction junction person. And maybe just that experience that he ordained in your life to occur, knowing that he would deliver you from it at some point, would be the impetus for a discussion to a younger person who might be stuck in it still. And he works all things good for those, together for good for those who what? Love him. Romans 8.28. Who knows why you did those things? Who knows? But today's today, right? And we're to live for the now. So don't make that mistake of reading your Bible the wrong way. I'll call it mature reading. The central theme in the Bible is the gospel. The central person is Jesus Christ. The more we mature, or the more mature you are, 
the more you'll read every passage of Scripture in light of these two truths, and every passage will amplify them. God is love. Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus is love. Go to 1 Corinthians 13.3. 1 Corinthians 13.3. I've said this before. I stand by it. It's what I believe Scripture says, that the great litmus test in sanctification is one word, love. Not that garbage love in dysfunction junction. Not the, uh, what do you call it, the romance novel love. Not that kind of love. We're talking about a godly love. We love because he first loved us. That's the great litmus test. Do you have his love? Do you understand what it is? Because if you don't, I mean, if you've read the Covert Arrogance book, like I know most of you are just like on your third read by now probably. If you've read that, you know I have a whole section on that thing. You shouldn't be out trying to love somebody else who's more messed up than you are until you actually have God's love. If you're already married, then that's, the scripture says stay married. You might be a, your spouse's deliverance, but that's a whole nother case. We're talking in general here. You've got to get the love right. That's the great litmus test. If you're just learning, I mean, if you're 50 years old and you're still learning, what is love? Then do that thing. That's what he wants for you. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, well, that sounds pretty religious, doesn't it? But do not have love, it profits me nothing. That's the great litmus test. Do you have it or not? Up here on the board. The hallmark of true love is a base desire to live for others. See, most people will tell you in romance novels that love is about you, that love is selfish, not selfless, that love is something someone has to prove to you. That's bondage. I love all of you despite you being ridiculous sometimes. Hey, DJ's laughing louder, so you know sometimes it's him, right? I'm just as bad to him, so I'm not like this highfalutin guy. I make mistakes. I apologized to you the other day for being a jerk. I know it's hard to believe, <laughs> right? So we're all in this thing together, but let's not be in bondage to the very institution of love by thinking it's a selfish, uh, selfish thing. That true love is when you are somehow looking for someone else to satisfy you that way that your love is dependent on what they can give you. That's a huge mistake. And that is exactly what Satan sows in this world. Let me redefine love. Actually, yesterday's blog was on redefinitions, right? Let me redefine love for you so that you think it's a selfish thing, that true love is when someone's able to satisfy you that way. That's bondage because, God forbid, we ever depend on anyone else for anyone. Read the end of John 2. Jesus Christ said, I don't trust man at all because <laughs> I know the heart of man. That's bondage because now you're in bondage to them. Now you're scurrying around like a squirrel. What can I do to, to please you, dear one? What can I do? I need this love. And you live in a perversion. Versus imagine this. 
Imagine this. I'm going to have a godly love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm going to carry this cross for the joy set before me. I'm going to have a godly love. I'm going to love because of who and what I am in Christ Jesus. And that makes me impermeable. You can no longer touch me when I have that kind of love. Amen? That's the love that you need to get to. That's the kind of love that God wants for you. But Satan is a genius. The hallmark of true love is based desire to live for others. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Those are the words of our Lord. The Spirit will assure you of your faith by revealing to you His love in you. 1 John 3, 19-24-13 For those of you who witnessed Thursday evening's missions update, you saw some beautiful fruit of the Spirit through humble vessels. But as I shared with you in my closing thoughts after the panel discussion, I don't want people to lose their perspective because it's like that photo album effect, right? you got nine years or plus in Scott's case. I don't know how long Scott's been doing it, but let's just say for many, many years, and we flip through these slides really quickly, and it's like, oh, my God, look how many good things they've done. I've, like, done nothing. You know, No, they've been at it for years and years. So just, again, don't get all, you know, wired up. So here's some good perspective. We shouldn't eject ourselves out of our own life context when impressed by another saint's good labor for Christ. That's their work. Most of you will never be called like that. Fine. So you're not supposed to be exactly like them. You're supposed to be you. Maybe you're the woman who saves up a little bit, buys a house and says you can live here for three months out of the year. Maybe you're that person. I don't know. I'm just saying listen to the Spirit. You have a context. So we shouldn't eject ourselves out of our own life context when impressed by another saint's good labor for Christ. We ought to always be encouraged, never discouraged by such things. It's not why he, you know, quote, parades up people in front of you so that you go, oh, look at, look at me, look at how I compare. All right, who compares? The flesh compares, first of all. Look, at, I don't compare anything. Oh, they're doing so many wonderful things, and I'm just a slug. That's the flesh. Now, if the Spirit's saying, you're a slug, now you have a problem. You understand what I'm saying? Now you have a problem. But your flesh shouldn't look at somebody who's doing it, and you're, you should be encouraged. Like, you mean it's possible? Yeah, it's possible. If, you, if I go by faith, he'll, he'll do it? Yeah, he'll do it. It's amazing that the word of God is actually true. If we understand these subtle issues, we find freedom. To God, every life has a unique context, and he applies his power to each of our lives differently. So says clearly stated theology. Up here on the board, experiencing said theology Looking back on your own life, considering how much God has done in and through you, your experience highlights God's basic promise that He will sanctify you. Philippians 1.6. He will do it. Which says, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So just rest and, as Scripture says, you know, be still. Have faith. Go to Matthew 6.1. I'll get ready to close here in a second. Matthew 6.1. Be yourself, please. This isn't about 
anyone to your left or your right or anyone that you're listening to even right now, it's not about you trying to be like them. It's about you being you. It's about following the right lead, which has nothing to do with the world or the flesh or any of our enemies. Matthew 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. In other words, Act like men! Be strong! Right? This kind of a garbage. Or whatever women do to flaunt each other's, ruffle each other's feathers, you know, whatever. Stop it. Be yourself. Be yourself. That's your witness. Was Jesus not himself when he came up to legions? He just walked up, right? And they were like, oh, hold the horses. That should be you. You should walk up and people go, that's true faith. That's true witness of a believer. Right, David? (laughs) Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. The Lord hates hypocrisy. Just be grateful you're still here, even able to suffer for his name's sake, able to press on up here on the board. Do you have to try to be grateful? No. You can be reminded of things to be grateful for, but God is the one who gives us the ability to be grateful. That's true grace. If you try to, quote, be something you're not, you're a hypocrite. Romans 12, 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Therefore, what do you think the Spirit's saying? Please, be yourself. Just be yourself. If you're here this morning, be yourself. If you're staying for the luncheon, be yourself. What matters is humility. Why? Because faith is received by the humble. That's why. If you want that faith, you want that freedom, Guess who gets it? The humble. So says Scripture. Even though the overarching theology states dogmatically that God will sanctify all of his children, some children grow up quicker than others in faith. Why? Because of some more humble, I guess. It's a simple formula up here on the board. James 4, 6, part B from the message. God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. Willful implies full of human will, which points to the flesh doing Whereas willing implies not already full, but open to being filled, which points to the humble. That's his way. If you lack faith in any of this, then do as the apostles did. Luke 17.5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Maybe that's your prayer. Maybe you're that person that's in limbo, and you say to yourself, I don't know what's going on. Been there, done that multiple times in my life. Anybody else? No, I'm the only idiot. Okay. So, just kidding. All right? Embrace it. Embrace it. Embrace it as actually he's stirring you up for a reason. Be still. And then go to him in prayer. And say, Lord, increase my faith. Maybe he just wants you to ask, right? Aren't there parables about asking? I think so. This is the big picture perspective that is God's. His perspective, His gospel, is what becomes our sanctification. Do you get that yet? 
Do you understand? I hope you do because this is probably the most important slide of the entire lesson. Honest to goodness. All, everything else was sort of like, you know, uh, practical examples and analogies and blah, 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 to get you to this right here. His perspective, his gospel, is what becomes our sanctification. So I call it living the gospel reality, however you'd like to think about it. But the more of his perspective you get, the more of all that silliness drops away. Something, first and foremost, love. You start getting love right. And then all that garbage that comes with garbage-type love falls away. Once you get your perspective right, his perspective, his gospel, becomes your sanctification. So stop striving to be religious. Stop striving to be sanctified. It's not your work. Stop trying to do stuff just because there are commands in the Bible. You'll do them when you want to do them. I mean, isn't that what you want? I mean, we're children, right? I like the, the, the base example. If you're a parent and you, you have two kids and you say to one kid, apologize to your sister. Sorry. Don't you really want the kid to, to have true remorse and repentance and say to his sister, I'm really sorry. Isn't that better as a parent? Isn't that what you want to see? Yeah, exactly. You know the rule in the house is don't hit your sister. So the command is there. But we do it anyway. We break commands all the time as children of God. But he's always just, okay, I confess. He wants you to get to a point where you have his perspective so that you realize that you really do have a repentant heart. You get to a certain point, you have his perspective. That's the very first thing you want to do. Go to him in prayer. Confess your sins. Agree with him. That becomes your sanctification. That attitude. Hopefully you see it. Know this and learn to be yourself while learning. God's grace will sanctify you. As the singer Matthew West says, grace wins. Know this and learn to be yourself while learning. God's grace will sanctify you. As the singer Matthew West says, grace wins. In my weakest moment, I see you Shaking your head in disgrace I can read the disappointment Written all over your face Here come those whispers in my ear Saying, who do you think you are? Looks like you're on your own from here Cause grace could never reach that far But in the shadow of that shame Down by all the blame I hear you call my name Saying it's not over And my heart starts to beat so loud Now drowning out the doubt I'm down but I'm not out There's a
bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message for keeping us safe and protected. Letting us know that these are realities that are based on the merits of your son's good work on the cross. For even he has said, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Thank you for assuring us of our precious faith, Father and for giving the authority over life and death to the one who keeps us safe for all of eternity. May we continue to grow in your grace and knowledge in such a way that every day is understood for what it truly is, a blessing. We pray, Father, for those still struggling with the gospel, for they are the lost. We pray that they listen to the Spirit's convicting ministry before it's too late. We pray also for those not able to be with us this morning and also for all the goings-on this afternoon at the Women's Appreciation Luncheon. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.